Die Kulturmittler, der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik. Welcome to a new episode of Die Kulturmittler, the IFA-Podcast on Foreign Cultural Policy. My name is Amirail Al and I'm very glad you're joining us today as we'll talk about daily cultural and non-cultural life during the war in Ukraine. This episode is the fourth part of a Ukraine special in which we dedicate six episodes to the developments in the fields of civil society, arts and culture since the outbreak of the war in February 2022. Today, my guest is Diana Berg, a Ukrainian human rights activist and artist who has also founded the cultural center platform CHU in Mariupol back in 2016. Dear Ms. Berg, a warm welcome to Die Kulturmittler. Hi everyone, thank you for inviting me. Hi Amira. I'm happy to be here, happy to be the part of any IFA activity, actually. It's a pleasure to have you, really. Thank you. We are meeting here at the International Film Festival Berlinale in Berlin. The short film, It's a Date, in which you participated as celebrating its world premiere here. Or it was just, I think, yesterday night. Yeah, last night. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I just saw the final cut of the movie only yesterday, only last night during the pre premiere. And it's awesome. It's beautiful, although it's very short. It's really part of Merlinari shots. It's only six minutes long, but it's totally, you know, worth watching. Wonderful. And you've also participated at the Documenta in Kassel last year. My question is, do you believe that contributing to such events will be perceived positively among Ukrainians and maybe give them a different perspective in times of war? Well, it's something I was uh, thinking the whole year about. Definitely Ukrainians should be using any stage, any platform as a, you know, as a means of talking about us, as a part of a means of raising visibility about Ukraine, about the war in Ukraine, about what's happening in our country uh, and about arts, of course, and cultural perspective on what's happening. So contributing to this event, to this kind of international events like Document or like Berlinale, I think in my life, I mean, it only happened during last year, so I never was a part of such big event. And suddenly... So what does it mean to you personally, you know, this international recognition and attention? I mean, how does it make you feel? Well, I think it's fair and logical that Ukraine is in the spotlight now, globally, because what's happening in our country is really concerning so many people all over the world. And we have so many allies, so many partners, so many friends all over the world, starting from governments and elites and politicians, and to just regular human beings who do help and solidarize. And of course, uh, cultural institutions, of course, uh, big cultural events also pay attention and somehow try to appreciate our courage and fight and resistance. Like in Berlinale, they made this beer, uh, the symbol of uh, Berlinale, mm -hmm. uh, the beer, mm -hmm. like with blue and yellow, the pin. Mm -hmm. They're wearing it. So, and they, they talk about Ukrainians, they talk about Ukrainian movies. So it's really cool to, to feel that. It's like you feel the support. Mm. Because you just said that it's, you know, big institutions and cultural events. Talking about cultural institutions in 2021, you have been a fellow at the cross-culture program of IFA. 
And if I understand correctly, you were working with the artists and political activists from the Center of Political Beauty during that yes. time. How important are these kinds of cultural programs and exchanges for Ukrainian artists at the moment? And what did you take away from this experience? Yes, indeed, I was the part of that, that year's CCP. Unfortunately, it was the COVID year and it took place online. Uh, I think it was the only online CCP, unfortunately. Uh, but still, it was a great experience. We even had a project that was born and developed during CCP with uh, my fellow artists, now friends, Felix Banholz from, actually from Berlin and Pavel Mendes from Cuba. Mm -hmm. And we are still friends. We are We see each other, we meet when we can, because Pavel moved to to study in Germany. And we still have this project being developed yet. It's a Red Lines project, and it's about the post-totalitarian societies and communities in terms of, you know, communication of the people and symbols and so on. So we still have the website, Red Lines. So that means it like it brought together people from all around the world? Absolutely, absolutely. I, yeah, and still have communicate with those fellows from my, like, leg, because there were several, like, legs or directions, culture, social, political, so on. And now I am the CCP alumni, which also opens up even more opportunities. Like, for example, last year, as an alumni, I participated in a workshop for LGBTQ and for a workshop of LGBTQ communication and so on. And like this topic was really deeply processed during this workshop. And again, we met even more people from all over the world. So I mean, if you want to make some friends from different parts of, of the globe, you just should apply to CCP. That's my advice. That's great. It has now been approximately a year since the war has started and uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. This is, however, not your first experience with war in Ukraine since this war has been simmering since 2014 when pro-Russian separatists took power in Donetsk, which is your hometown. In an article you wrote that back then your life as an activist began and uh, it changed your life completely. What was your life like before 2014 and what has changed ever since? Can you take us there? I call myself, my version of me before 2014, a pessimist because, you know, I was not into politics, into civil life, into activism. I was just leading ordinary Uh, life and was like a designer, graphic designer, that's it, in Donetsk. But then Maidan started, and I think it really touched everyone. If you didn't go to Maidan to Kiev, then you were at least, you know, following it online on streams and were really trying to help and send something there. And this is how it started. But then, you know, these first steps of Russian takeover came to Donetsk. Then we understood that was their plan to come and grab the territories. They came to Donetsk and they proclaimed, self-proclaimed governor. They said, now I'm the governor. Just a random guy. This did something to you, no? It did something to me. And me and my friends, we just said, let's go and protest. And we just wrote it in social media. Uh, let's go protest like in two days. 
And we came there and saw like thousands of people with Ukrainian flags. And then we realized that that was the movement that was needed right in that moment. And that is how I became an activist and I even became like an initiator of the movement, which we call Donetsk's Ukraine. And it uh, united many people and many actions, many rallies. But each of the rally during that spring was more and more violent in terms of counter-resistance of pro-Russian powers. They were attacking us. They were bigger and bigger crowds of them. One of the uh, rally was really tragic because people were killed. Our Ukrainian friends were killed by Russians. So, and it then we understood it. It is serious that they are fighting just for really Russian, Ruskimi, Russian, you know, world. Did you ever expect that Russia would invade Ukraine at any point? Uh, before 14th, no. But then it was shock and it was, it was a despair to do something, uh, so to fight, to resist. But then it became one of the last march we had. We again, it was attacked. It was attacked like heavily and brutally, and many people end up in ended up in uh, hospitals. And at the same time, there was a pressure online and offline on the organizers because this pro-Russian that flooded Donetsk by the time they were making like walls of uh, of shame of people who they wanted to kill, for example, like this is. The uh, this is Delaberg. Her address is this. Her telephone is this. She is the traitor, for example. That's how it it happened. It was already like very dangerous for me to stay at my home even. So I decided to leave for a week. When all cools down, I come back. That's it. That's how I left Donetsk, my hometown, for for good. You left uh, Donetsk in 2014, right? And you fled. First to I don't know exactly to another city, but then you went to Mariupol. Yeah, Odessa, then Lviv, and but then I ended up in Mariupol when I realized that it's been three months and I'm not coming back to Donetsk. Like, what's happening? Maybe it will take longer. <laughs> you know, my trip there uh, because there was a referendum already that was already occupied. But Mariupol was Ukrainian, and I saw that it was in Mariupol that they started this, wanted to start the same, something same that like it happens in Donetsk, started in Mariupol. And Mariupol is very close to Donetsk. Uh, so from the western part of Ukraine, from Lviv, I just decided to come to Mariupol to, to be closer to my hometown and also to maybe to help local volunteers, local activists to, you know, to resist. That's so it. That means, you know, when the pro-Russian separatists took power in Donetsk, this made you into an activist and made you into an artist. So it actually was exactly. a start of a new life exactly. for you. Yeah. And so in Mariupol, you started this new life. How has your work and the work of other artists and activists have been affected when the war started a year ago? I mean, you were there in Mariupol. And how, how did your life have been affected from that moment? Uh, like a year ago, we were planning uh, like another episode of art residencies. And on 24th, two artists had to come to Mariupol to start their work. And my first thought when I woke up and knew about the start of invasion, I was, um, okay, so what about the residency? Are we 
still making it or maybe we postpone it or what should we do with it? So I, I thought actually about culture, arts and, and projects. And then everything? No, no, of course we couldn't. Yeah, we couldn't do that. We, we canceled it. So you actually had to leave eventually Mariupol because it became too dangerous for you. So you actually had to flee your home twice. First exactly. you had to leave Donetsk, then you had to flee from Mariupol. And both times were not like my own decisions. It was decisions for, you know, was made for me by... They were forced on you. Mm-hmm. What your, has your life been since you've left Mariupol? I assume you're still in the Ukraine. Yeah. But how has your life been ever since? Uh, you know, from my experience, it's harder to lose your home the second time. The second time is harder because maybe you, you know, you put more efforts, more soul in in what you have and then you lose it. And it, it wasn't only my home and another home that, another city that became my home, but also it was a platform too, the space that I founded and that really became a, like a change-making platform in Mariupol because Mariupol is still like a little bit conservative because it's an industrial city, historically with a big industry, heavy industry. And yeah, it was a bit conservative. So uh, all this modern arts was kind of provocative and progressive for the city by the time when we opened it. So maybe we have to explain that when you came to Mariupol, you founded this art platform to... Maybe you can explain what kind of space that was. It was a space when we first, we hosted events, hosted not events, but artists, musicians, exhibitions, but not just arts for arts, but it was always arts about some, on some acute social topics. It's about feminism, like gender violence, for example, or anything that is like very up to date. And uh, also we had, we were also like a, like a space, like a safe space for teenagers from underprivileged groups, you know, from vulnerable groups. Because we realized that these these teenagers are actually invisible and underrepresented. So we managed to reach out to them and uh, our space became like a second home for them because we organized workshops. We involved them in different cultural artistic practices and gave them uh, the opportunity to try themselves to be an artist or, I don't know, a musician or whatever. Because uh, otherwise those kids will have only one, you know, future, like go to the plant and be a worker. That's it. So that's maybe the most important part of our space, the the community of youth, with whom, to whom, for whom we really made changes. But now that Mariupol and most of its infrastructure has been destroyed Mm -hmm. in the war, the platform doesn't have a, a place to be anymore, at least physically. Yeah. So... How do you continue or do you continue your work with you and, you know, what does it look like? So what's your life uh, like now with this platform? Uh, We do continue. We decided to not reopen, not find like another space to open or another town or whatever, because we really put so much in that space. So it's, it's too early to think about it, you know. So now we more not a space, but a collective, I would say. And we still work with uh, those teenagers. We make online projects for their 
adaptation to the new realities because many of them they they saw so much of atrocities and had to relocate so this is a big stress we make online project we make projects mostly online because you know because even our team is distributed we are not all in kiev someone is in riga someone is in berlin actually and the team is just distributed so we learn to work in this um, format and uh, it's online format mostly so you want to continue this way also for the time being for now yes but then we all are waiting for the occupation of mariupol you know what challenges are you facing as an artist and cultural activist working from a country that you have fled to because you said that there's people from Jew that are in Berlin or in Riga. Mm. How difficult is it to work there? I mean, if you left your country behind. Well, I it was everyone had to make a choice. Yes, it's uh, it's a choice either to stay in Ukraine, it's a choice to leave while the war. Either choice is really hard because staying is uh, really putting yourself at risk every day. And, you know, undergoing some hardships like blackouts or, you know, missiles attack and all this. And on the other hand, if you choose to leave to Europe to the safe, more safe place, it doesn't mean that you are all, you know, happy and that's it. No, it's uh, even harder because this phenomena survival's guilt. This is something that is the biggest burden. And, uh, for example, our friends in Europe, our team in Europe or Yeah, mostly in Europe, they are more worrying about us than us because they, when they said they read the news that there is a missile attack on Kiev, now they are all in breakdown. They just imagine, you know, all the worst. So we have to, you know, to calm them down. It's even they are feeling it even more acute than we are. So. I think you are uh, very often have this topic uh, in your Instagram posts and mm -hmm. articles. Mm -hmm. You often talk about this difficulty of living with privileges, mm -hmm. like you know, even after your escape, you said living, you know, with running. You have running water. Mm -hmm. You have a car. You you know, simply surviving that other Ukrainians have not because they're still in Mariupol or mm -hmm. in Luhansk or you know, in places where even in Kherson, because Kherson is already deoccupied, but it's even more harder. You know, yeah. So yeah. and you just said also, you know, this feeling of survivor's guilt. How do you manage to cope with this feeling? I mean, is art a way of dealing with it and helps dealing with this guilt? Or is it activism that maybe helps? It could be art, it could be activism, but actually you really have to find your therapist <laughs> because every Ukrainian should find a good therapist because now we ha all have, will have PTSD. We don't have yet it because we are inside of the trauma because PTSD is post-traumatic syndrome. But we all have the adaptation disorder. We all have, you know, Uh, different crises and different disorders. So we just have to admit that, yeah, we will have some, we should have some systematic program, I guess, on the state level of overcoming this burden, including survivor's guilt, including all this new, you know, new forms of, you never even thought that this kind of feelings or this kind of thoughts may occur to you. So we just have to admit that, yeah, we are living new life, totally new. Yeah, that's it. You said earlier that you initially wanted the platform to be a safe space. Mm -hmm. You said for art and for activism mm -hmm. and for the kids, you know, to give them an mm -hmm. opportunity or a different opportunity of, of life. 
Do you still feel that a culture can be this safe space for people in these times of war and with these traumas that they're living like, collectively? I do believe that arts can be a catalyst of healing and have a theoretical, you know, effect. Still do, because we we had this project for actually for youngsters, for teenagers, for relocated teenagers online already last year, often involving them in some creative designing. They were so happy. They were so happy to channel whatever they feel into something, you know, something visual. So at least judging by this uh, experience, I can definitely say that it could be at least a channel, you know, to, to process whatever you had. And maybe for people who had to flee the country and are living abroad and who are, you know, in Europe, that art and culture gives them also a platform to make Ukrainian voices heard, you know, as you do when you are here in Berlin at the Berlinale or you're in Documenta or wherever, like giving it, you know, this voice. Yes, amplifying our voices, exactly. And many Ukrainian artists who are now in Europe, They work a lot. They work a lot. They organize uh, exhibitions. They organize uh, different kind of cultural events. They go on talking about Ukraine through different mediums. They make beautiful arts. And even in Berlin, I know on at least two powerful Ukrainian art spaces that were just opened last year after you know the invasion by relocated artists, and they keep working a lot to showcase Ukrainian culture and arts. How do you believe that international and intercultural organizations and networks such as IFA could support the Ukrainian people, artists and civil society uh, in a meaningful way in this time? Well, again, giving us a stage, helping us to amplify our voices, actually giving us words in any, you know, any way. This is a very good help because, well, of course, I can talk with you about volunteer, about humanitarian aid. Of course, it all also matters. And we are really thankful to everyone who who sent any kind of help, like from electric batteries to just warm clothes mm. to any kind of medical you know, supplies to Ukraine and even, you know, cultural, artistic spaces, they donate something physical, not only cultural. That's very interesting phenomena that how arts has transformed to something very physical and material, which is really needed. That's how, you know, for example, artistic musical collectives, They, uh, or festivals, they write that we accept donations for Ukraine because we want to gather some money for, for the bus, evacuation bus. And they gather this money, they get this evacuation bus and they send it to Ukraine, for example, you know. So it's not only, it's when the place, the moment when culture, arts, real, real help, something physical and, you know, like emergency help, all came together. <laughs> so it's a mix. It's the platforms that are important that these institutions can give you and the organizations. It's the voice that is yeah. heard and helps to amplify, you know, your cause. But it's also the very real necessary help that that comes together. Exactly. That's just how artists in Ukraine 
just came to serve in army. There were so many artists, so there are so many artists of all kinds, like photographers, writers, authors, visual artists, DJs, musicians, who just went to defend our country. And it's, again, such a mixture of, you know, when someone asks me, like, can art, art defend? I say, yeah, especially if it's an artist who defends my country at war. So it's, again, like very interesting times we are living. You know, it's all the mixture of uh, mixture of help, a mixture of different of solidarity, which is like even unexpected ways of solidarity. Thank you so much, Ms. Thank Beck, you. for your time and uh, all this insight and uh, for sharing your story with us. And um, I wish you all the best. Stay safe, please, yeah. and Thank take you. care of Thank yourself. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Ifa, for this platform, because this is another platform of, you know, to give voice to Ukrainians. Thank you for this. And thank you, Germany, for all kinds of help we do get from you. But it's not enough. Just remember, it's never enough. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for Goodbye. your time. Goodbye. That brings us to the end of this special episode on Ukraine. If you've enjoyed it, feel free to recommend the podcast to others. The next episode will be published next week. To make sure you don't miss this and all upcoming episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can do that anywhere where you can find good podcasts, for example, on Spotify, Apple Podcast or Deezer. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at podcast at ifa.de. For more information on our organization, IFA, Institut für Auslandsbeziehungen, visit ifa.de. With that, I say goodbye. My name is Amira El Al. Thank you for listening and I hope you join us for the next episode. Die Kulturmittler, der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik.